Hi, this is Maggie Rar. I'm guest hosting Examiner Radio again this week. Examiner Radio is the weekly radio show and podcast that covers news, politics, and all things Halifax. Our regular host, Tim Biscay, is away, but we'll hear from him anyway later in the show. In the studio with me now is Tara Tyure, the producer of Examiner Radio. Hey, Tara. Hi, Maggie. It's so great to see you again. It's very nice to be back again. I know. Maybe Thank you well, for having we, me. Maybe we can uh, keep this. Maybe if, if, I know. Maybe if uh, <laughs> Tim never comes back, uh, hopefully he's getting that vacation he needs. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, also, I uh, speaking of Tim, I think we should put a quick plug in for Halifax Examiner because I know he would really appreciate it if everyone subscribed online at halifaxexaminer.ca. This is Examiner Radio episode 129. As always, you can listen to the show on CKDU, that's 88.1 FM in Halifax, every Friday at 4.30 p.m., or listen online anywhere in the world at www.ckdu.ca. And the longer podcast version of this show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, um, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Uh, And uh, for new listeners, uh, subscribe to the Examiner Radio podcast and have each new episode automatically delivered to your device of choice. Just search for Halifax Examiner in that platform search engine, and it should be the first result. We're doing something a little bit different this week. Tim is on vacation, as we just mentioned, up in Toronto, but he just couldn't stay away. Uh, he just could not get his paws off. <laughs> no, Tim's being Tim. <laughs> yep, this uh, this outfit here. And uh, he snuck in an interview with Dave Bush. Dave is an editor at Rank and File. That's a website focused on Canadian labor news. Yeah, and, you know, everyone who reads Halifax Examiner knows that Tim is really fascinated by, you know, and really interested in labor news. Right. Um, so he was telling me that he, um, you know, a key reason why he wants to talk to Dave is because he sees, you know, sort of, quote, unquote, business press covering economic issues from the perspective of, of the capital class and investors, and not so much a labor press covering economic issues from the perspective of wage earners. Um, and you know, Dave, for people who don't know him, um, he's a former union organizer uh, with the Service Employees International Union Local 2. Um, and that union represented uh, everyone from uh, brewery workers to janitors and, uh, you know, all types of uh, service employees. Yeah, that's a huge job. Mm-hmm. First up, though, it's the Week in Review. three things that we could touch on today. And uh, one is this uh, piece that was in CBC, and it was an interview that Information Morning did with uh, art historian Charmaine Nelson. And uh, it's really interesting because she is normally a professor at McGill, and she's now at Harvard University. And her research is all uh, looking at ads from like the 1700s. Yeah, yeah and I love how, this. This thing, this, this is exactly the kind of story that I just kind of fell into as you, soon as I saw it. Absolutely. And she's looking at these ads, and it's all about uh, selling, buying, catching, capturing enslaved people. Yeah, so the the print version of this story that was uh, written by Maura Donovan for CBC Nova Scotia opens with twenty dollars. Twenty dollars. Yeah. That's the cost. Yeah. Uh, or that's the reward, I guess you could get for capturing 
mm-hmm. a slave in Nova Scotia. This is an ad that ran in Halifax. What was the name of the paper? Halifax Press? Uh, Weekly Gazette. So this was a Nova Scotia newspaper called the Weekly Gazette. And I'm, I'm just going to read part of an ad Please do. from 1772. And it sort of talks about um, a young girl who ran away from her master, John Rock. And it kind of goes on to describe her. And at the end, it says, and whosoever may be so kind to take her up and send her home to her said master shall be paid all costs and charges together with two dollars reward for their trouble. Signed, John Rock. So the fascinating thing about this is that this is actually being used as um, curriculum in a program uh, at Harvard. And one of the really uh, interesting things that came out in this interview is that um, this prof was saying her students, she's yet to have a student say, oh, yeah, yeah, slavery in Canada. Like everybody is floored to learn that this was a thing Hmm. and that this was happening. And, um, you know, occasionally I've come across people. uh, I remember once meeting somebody in Vancouver that said, oh, yeah, Halifax, Africville. And it just, you know. Right. knocked me off my feet that well, they that they knew. So there's a bit of knowledge, I think, across our own country about various issues. But I mean, of course, Africville is recent history. This goes mm-hmm. all the way back to our own um, agency in the slave trade, right? The transatlantic right. slave well, trade. We often think of slavery as a Southern thing, mm-hmm. right? The Southern plantations. And we think of Canada as being sort of the end of the Underground Railroad. Right. Like, like, we're the good guys in all this. Um, what's interesting is uh, we had... Uh, Afua Cooper, who's a well-known historian on the show last month. Um, I think it was episode, I wrote this down, episode uh, 125 for anyone who wants to check that out. Um, And she's on this scholarly panel that Dal put together, um, and it's looking at Lord Dalhousie, right? So George Ramsey is is his birth name. Um, And uh, they're collecting facts about all of his statements and his actions and kind of everything regarding his relationship with uh, racism, slavery, and African Nova Scotians. Uh, And so she went to Scotland, where he's from. She did a lot of research on this. Um, And uh, like things like he said, like, black people are constitutionally lazy. Right. Um, You know, when he was governor of Nova Scotia, he cut the food supply and people were dying of starvation. Um, But as you say, this is a little known history. mm -hmm. But, you know, here's the thing. This report that um, she's authoring um, for uh, for Dalhousie University, this is going to be wrapped up this fall. This is going to be made uh, public. Um, And they're even looking at recommendations because part of it is to, you know, it's one thing just to talk about history, but it's also to link that past to the present. Absolutely. And talk about the impact that this is having today. Um, And she was saying some even, even of the recommendations that they'll come up with could range from, you know, developing a lecture series to even renaming streets and buildings on campus. Right. I love that this is happening right now. It's kind of this, I mean, Cornwallis is one example of it, you know, the statue, um, renaming the school, the church, all this kind of stuff. But I think it's interesting, this question of, it's almost like um, old school divestment, like moral divestment, you know, and how do we um, take ownership in our institutions over these uh, really dark issues in our own past. So yeah, great story. And we'll definitely be hearing a lot more about this, uh, you know, slavery and racism um, and from a real historical perspective in the next um, next few months, especially as as this report comes out from Dow. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, The other thing that I I wanted to move on. (laughs) (laughs) So the second story that I wanted to uh, draw attention to today is about um, restorative justice in Nova Scotia. 
And there's a little um, story that came out this week uh, about the province, and it is aiming to address some of the backlog in our court system by um, expanding the already existing restorative justice program that is being um, offered in certain places across the province. Uh, And the number that they're throwing out is even if we could reduce the course load, sorry, the caseload by 100 cases, that that would be significant. And something that um, you'll pick up on in some of the coverage that's come out already is that people who work in restorative justice in RJ will tell you that, look, this is not an easier path. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, there is more work involved because it concerns itself with the uh, big picture of outcomes, right? So uh, whether... uh, victims involved in various cases and crimes feel that justice has been served. Right, because often, I mean, when we're talking about restorative justice, we're talking about um, the guilty face-to-face with the victim. Right. Right. Yes. And I mean, that's one example of how these things can roll out. And there are many uh, sort of layers um, uh, in terms of... um, pursuing this as a solution-oriented system. So I think it's great. Um, I think RJ is something that has uh, seen a lot of success in other um, parts of the country and other countries. But my question about this announcement from the province is who's going to be doing all of this? So are we hiring new justice officials? Are we um, redefining roles that certain social workers and community groups are going to play? Like, where are the people who are doing this work going to come from? And uh, so I'll be watching very closely to see how uh, this is going to roll out. Yeah. I mean, as you pointed out, this is not new, right? The idea of restorative justice. They've had the program for youth since 1999. That's and, a yeah, long in, time. In yeah. the main provincial uh, program that they introduced last year, they they had um, something like just over 600 cases in the first six months of the program. So, that, so there's definitely an interest there, right? Right, yeah. Um, but, you know, it sounds like what's new is this committee that they're, they've tasked to try to look that's right. Figure out how they're going to do that. Mm. Yeah. Well, I don't know, Maggie. I mean, maybe there's a story in there for you. Yeah, I think I'm going to keep sniffing around. Definitely. Delve into that. Dog with a bone. Mm-hmm. Very awkward transition. Yes, <laughs> because uh, I guess we kind of have to talk about porn. Yeah, we're going to talk about pornography. Yeah, well, not really. Around it. We're going to talk around it as much as we can. (laughs) But on a serious note, this is a story that broke this past week, and it concerns uh, the intersection of um, sexual health and mental health and involves pornography addiction. And um, so there is an effort underway to address this. It's a group called The Porn Diet. That's the name of the program. Uh, You can find it on Facebook. And the whole point is to address the resultant sexual problems that crop up in adulthood when um, this isn't solely uh, focused on young men, but typically overwhelmingly involves young men who are growing up in this internet era with nine tabs on the go. And um, if that's your experience of masturbation growing up, Anybody who listens to the Savage Love podcast will know that this can create a lot of issues for someone and um, uh, make it very, very difficult to have like a healthy sexual relationship with one partner. Anyway, all this to say, uh, there's this new program that's about to roll out called The Porn Diet. You can find it on Facebook. But here is my 
concern. I read about this in Metro. It was a story by Yvette Dantremont. They're holding these meetings at public libraries. Right. So do you go with your mom? Yeah, like I I, I love the idea. I think that we do need to, um, you know, d- deal with the fact that there's so much shame around uh, like personal sexual practices, I guess. Um, and even this group will tell you like, look, this is not about shaming porn users or, you know, ripping apart pornography or anything like that. It's about uh, working with developing healthy habits or maybe um, disentangling some uh, less healthy habits. But I just think like, if we're going to address this, I think it needs to begin in in the education system. So the question that I have for this group and for this effort, uh, which is funded by the province, is what role is this going to play in sexual education in our schools, in junior high school, in high school? Um, because these are the ages where these um, habits develop, right? Right. So and that's that the only yeah. place where you have a captive audience. Like I can Absolutely. show me a 15-year-old who's going to go to this library event and I will admit, I will come back, I will call in and leave a voicemail for Tim and say, I was wrong. But I just think you got to really consider audience when you're doing this kind of work. And it's so sensitive and there is so much shaming involved. And I just think the best way to kind of crack into this is through the educational system. We already have it there. It's just yeah. waiting. And, may, and maybe they are. Maybe that's part of this program. Um, so that's another thing I would really like to look into. Yeah. Can I say something about the name the porn diet. Mm-hmm. When I think of a diet, I think of I need to have a little bit more of this and a little bit less of this. Yeah. So I saw this, the term porn diet. It was like, so do I have more of this porn yeah, exactly. and less of this porn? Um, I did. <laughs> the Can- I, Canada's porn guide. Canada's porn guide. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I was a, a healthy porn diet. A healthy porn diet. So I did put in porn diet. Into Google, of course, to try to find the Tara! Facebook page. I know, I know what things what you should not you do. Think was going to happen. I know. I should be smart of this. Should I even anyway, ask what happened? The search is related to porn addiction. Right. I think this says something about how many people are actually going into Google and typing in, and uh, you know about this topic. Right? How to deal with husband addiction, spouses of sexually addicted men. Your sexually addicted spouse. Right. How do you know if you're addicted to masturbating? How to get rid of masturbation habit. That's one right, that's right. misspelled. Hypersexual disorder. Right. So, you know, it just goes to show people are going online and they're checking this out. I think it's an educational issue. And I'm delighted that the province is recognizing this and that relationship between um, the greater concern of mental health. But I think there's a very practical course that could be taken. And I, I think it's through our educational system. There you go. And with that... And maybe they're listening. (laughs) Let's take a break. When we come back, Tim Bousquet talks with Dave Bush, an editor at Rank and File. You're listening to Examiner Radio. Hi, this is Tim Bousquet in Toronto at the Canada Land Luxurious Studio. That's a, a euphemism for a broom closet off off a dark hallway. Anyway, uh, thanks to Russell Gregg and Jesse Brown and the crew for letting us record here. I'm joined with Dave Bush. Hi. Hi, how's it going? Very good. As we were talking before coming in, you reminded me that I interviewed you 
in a previous life seven or eight years ago or something. And I'm sorry I don't remember that. It's okay. At, at that time, you were a union organizer with the SIEU? Yeah, I was a union organizer with the Service Employees International Union in, in Halifax with in uh, Local 2. So I was working on a property service uh, union organizing, so janitors, security guards, food service workers. But uh, you got out of the, the union organizing biz, and I know you mostly from a bunch of stuff you wrote for the old Halifax Media Co-op. Yeah, so I uh, I left my job as a union organizer, and I went in to do a PhD at York University in 2013. But I'm taking actually a temporary leave, and I'm working for a legal clinic as a uh, uh, workers' rights organizer there in Toronto. And you are also one of the editors, or one of two editors, right, at, at Rank and File? Yeah, a bunch of editors. Uh, there's uh, five editors at rankandfile.ca. Um, so there's myself, Samantha, out in British Columbia, Gerard in Toronto here as well. And then uh, our founders, Doug and Andrew. One is in Saskatchewan and one is in Kingston. Well, tell me about Rank and File. Uh, this is obviously... Mouthpiece for labor. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I think we started in, in 2012 as a radio program. I wasn't uh, there for that in Kingston, Ontario. And it was it was designed and the intention was to not just be a mouthpiece for labor, but to talk about working class issues and how do we build an effective voice for workers and uh, all the different kinds of issues that they face and the strategies and tactics that are being debated inside the trade union movement. And that started then because from 2008 up to 2012-13 was a brutal period of austerity, a brutal period for organized labor in Canada. So we're talking about the Valley Inco up in Sudbury. We're talking about U.S. Steel in Hamilton, right. uh, the Teamsters Rail, uh, Air Canada, uh, workers all being crushed, uh, same with Canada Post workers, all being crushed by the Harper government and employers. And there was no real effective left wing in labor, and there was no real effective way in which labor was fighting back. And we sort of thought that, you know, we need a voice, a vehicle to discuss issues that matter that can actually strengthen, put the move back in movement in the labor movement. Okay, I want to explore that a bit. Uh, can you tell me? Well, how big of an organization is Rank and File? So Rank and File, it's, it's a publication. We have uh, about five editors, and we have float between um, sort of three journalists part-time, three to one, and then regular contributors on top of that. And are writers paid? Uh, writers are paid. So our people who are hired, like contracts, uh, are paid. And then we have like regular trade unionists writing in about their issues, and they're not paid. Uh-huh. We have a budget of about, uh, I don't know, nine, ten thousand a year. So we pay what we oh, can. Oh, jeez. So uh, and that's we'll, that's uh, shoestring even by Halifax Examiner standards. Yeah, we're very shoestring. So none of our editors are paid. We're doing this as a political project. Uh, we're one of two publications in the country focused on labor. The other is Our Times Magazine, which originated uh-huh. here in Toronto, coming from the injured workers movement in the Italian uh, neighborhoods uh, in the West End in the nineteen early nineteen eighties. But they're 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 a magazine, and we have a bit of a more I would say, confrontational approach inside labor and outside of labor. Not to dwell too much on the business side of things, but I'm, I'm curious about your 
your business model? What funds you? We get funding from uh, readers mostly, uh, so monthly donations from readers. But we also have gotten and do get regular little checks from different union locals. And we have had one bigger check for $2,000 that funded a, a reporter right. doing a particular project. Okay. But that's sort of where we're at in terms of fundraising. Obviously, we want that to grow. Yeah. I, I wanted to pick your brain about some contextual issues here. In the mainstream media, what's left of uh, daily newspapers, there's always the business section, you know? And I guess... I remember the business section in my local paper in the United States, which was a very good, it still is a very good paper, uh, the Virginia Pilot, but it, it popped into existence, as I recall, around the Reagan administration in the 1980s. Previous to that, on the radio, it was kind of corny, literally. You would hear the prices for corn and commodities, and, and this was useful information for farmers, right? But this kind of day-in, day-out where the stock market is was a creation kind of of uh, the neoliberal age, you know, the with, mm-hmm. with Reagan and so forth. And I just am still fascinated that everything now in the business section is framed in this sort of corporate gestalt. You know, we all live in this world and we're supposed to care where the stock market is. But there's nothing equivalent in terms of a labor section in the paper. Right. So that's a, yeah, it's a classic sort of line uh, we use. You know, there's there's always a business section, but never a labor section. And to give you a sense of where labor reporting is in this country, there is not one dedicated labor reporter in this country. In this province alone, in 1995, 1997, we had about 8 to 12 journalists for for local papers dedicated as labor reporters. We don't have one. When, when was that? Uh, 1995, 1997, so, we had so eight. In uh, this province being Ontario? Ontario. So 20 years ago, there were seven or eight uh, reporters dedicated to the labor beat. Now there's zero. There's zero. There's a work and wealth reporter, uh, Sarah, at the Toronto Star, and she does fabulous work talking about workplace issues. Uh-huh. But she is not technically a labor reporter because she doesn't also talk about what's going on inside trade unions and and things like that, working class organizations. So she's a great asset, but she's our only thing in this country. We're talking on uh, Sunday, and yesterday I saw an excellent piece in The Star. A reporter went undercover as a temporary worker in one of these bakery factories. Yeah, that was Sarah, and she's that's going to be part of a three-part series. Um, she's a, an amazing reporter, and that's funded, uh, I think her reporting is f- sort of half-funded through the Atkinson's Foundation. Yeah. But that's it in the whole country. And where we do see labor reporting happening, it is the odd person from, you know, the business section or a business reporter talking about industrial relations, strike or lockout from that kind of framework. And for instance, we had in Toronto sort of a bigger union politics going on here with our local uh, TTC union, the ATU Local 113. And the reporter dedicated to talking about those issues was the transportation reporter. And they did a fine job, but they also lacked the knowledge, lacked the skill set, I think, the background to actually do proper reporting of what was going on. There was 
press conferences and stuff like this, and they would report on them, but they didn't do the and weren't equipped to do the you know investigative reporting of what was happening there. Right. It's again a question of a beat. A good reporter can do a good story on just about anything, but to to work day in and day out in one particular beat, whether it's be police or courts or government, province house, city hall, business or labor brings a depth of knowledge and experience that you can't have otherwise. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in when I talk about we had eight reporters in 1997 doing labor, we also had a dedicated education reporters from many local papers. We had dedicated Queens Park reporters from many different local papers yeah. that were also doing labor stuff. So what the, the fabric of labor reporting was much stronger. Now it's we're relying on basically one work and wealth reporter and people in the business press and whoever gets assigned randomly right. these labor issues. And no one is really, I think, doing the in-depth contextualizing of these labor struggles. And so that's the gap we're trying to, you know, partly fill. Yeah. I, I wonder, um, I mean, we could talk for weeks on uh, the demise of local newspapers, but I wonder what part having uh, dedicated reporters, in some cases in the Chronicle Herald case, many reporters, at least for a while, dedicated to the business beat, which directly affects relatively few of their readers, and zero reporters dedicated to the labor beat, where the vast majority of their readers are people who work for a wage. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially going back to, you know, we put our, try to put ourselves in a tradition of comforting the afflicted, uh, inflicting the comfortable. And, you know, what mainstream papers are doing right now is when they're we're faced with budget choices, you know, they're doing the opposite. And budgets is, are, are a great way of seeing what the actual priorities of organizations are. Can you tell me some of the stories that we might find on Rake and Fall or some that you're particularly proud of? Um, I'm pretty proud of the reporting we did around the local, sorry, ATU Local 113 story. And that story was a story of a local president, the largest ATU local, about 11,000 members, largest ATU local in the country, 11,000 members. Their president basically wanted to take them out of the amalgamated transportation union and either go independent or look like go with Unifor, which was another union, the largest private sector union in the country. And it was framed in a way in which said the amalgamated transportation union is a international union. So it has uh, unions here in Canada and then also local unions in the United States. And so it was framed as a way in which is this is a defense of nationalism. We need to take this local mm. out of the ATU International as defending Canada and so forth. And it turned out to be not about that. That was a smokescreen and it was a lot of cover about what was a political battle inside, not even really on that much politics, but about control between the local president and what was going on with the international. And so we found, you know, documents, we got recorded conversations between different executive members showing that this was BS, essentially. And that we also found out that Unifor was paying the lawyers and in communication with the uh, local president before the uh, separation occurred or attempted separation occurred. And so we found out that people were lying. We found out that there was a lot more to that story than was being presented. And for us, it was a it was a scandal that involved the Canadian Labor Congress and it was a scandal that involved Unifor and the ATU. Uh, and no one else was talking about right. it. 
And it sort of definitely garnered for us a large readership. Uh, And I think, you know, I'm proud of it because I think it helped change that conversation inside labor. You think this is the future of media, that uh, we have activists, reporters, groups like Rank and File who are clearly partisan funding journalism that can be partisan and yet uh, hold up to uh, long-held journalistic standards? And is this is this what the future looks like? I mean, I hope that future looks better funded than it does. <laughs> um, but maybe. I mean, I think that there is there is a role in which people are going to have to fill the gaps themselves. And so there's lots of things that aren't being reported on. And we're going to fi- have to figure out as trade union activists, as labor activists, how to actually do that ourselves. Because if we're just waiting for the mainstream press to do this, we're going to be facing some major problems. Great. Uh, how can people find out more about uh, Rank and File? You can go to uh, rankandfile.ca um, and you can check out all our latest stories. And if you want to become a monthly sustainer, you can just go to our uh, funding page. Great. We'll have a link to that on our web website at halifaxexaminer.ca. Really appreciate you coming in today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, thank you, Russ, who's off to the side here uh, spinning the dials and making everything work, and the folks at Canada Land for making this possible. I've been speaking with Dave Bush, who is uh, an editor at uh, rankandfile.ca. That's a wrap for this week's Examiner Radio, the weekly radio show and podcast produced by the Halifax Examiner. I'm Maggie Rar, sitting in for Tim Biscay. And I'm Tara Tyer. As always, we'd love to know what you think. Send an email to podcast at halifaxexaminer.ca. Also, let us know if you have any uh, story suggestions for future episodes. And while you're at it, please subscribe to the Halifax Examiner. I'm sure Tim would appreciate it. Mm-hmm.